Hey listeners, Andy Steiger here, and it's official. We did it. We reached and surpassed our year in giving campaign goal of $200,000. I'm speechless. <laughs> no, I've always got something to say. I am so thankful. Given all the snow and ice we had here in BC, our mail didn't come until this week. And after we tallied everything up, we raised a grand total of $204,071.96. Please know that the AC team is humbled, encouraged, and oh so thankful for your prayers and support. Personally, I want to say a big thank you to all my brothers and sisters in Christ that have and continue to faithfully support the work we do. You know, one of our faithful supporters told me, Andy, this year is an ambitious goal. And she was right. But we here at AC are compelled to continue being bold for the gospel. So from the AC family, I want to thank you for your partnership as we are bold for the gospel together. Have you ever wanted to be a part of the AC podcast? Well, now's your chance. We have a special episode coming up called Rights of Conscience, which is actually a part of the Canadian Charter. Many Canadians as of late have felt that that right has been challenged. And so we've heard from a number of listeners who said, hey, AC, why don't you talk more about this subject, particularly as it pertains to things like the vaccine and other issues that are going on in Canadian culture today. We are happy to do that. However, we also want to hear from you. This is an opportunity for you to voice your conscience. To do that, send your voice note to troy at apologeticscanada.com by January 26th and make sure that it's no longer than one minute to 30 seconds in length. Now there's no guarantee that we will use it, but there's a good chance that we will. I look forward to hearing from you. Hey everyone, welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Steve and I'm here with Wesley Huff. I'm here. All right. Yeah, this doesn't happen very often, just you and me, but here we are again. Uh, and we are going to, of course, talk about Jesus. Um, and we're going to actually tackle a couple of different topics. But uh, I know some listeners have um, have very little patience for long back and forth banter at the beginning. So we'll just jump right into that. Today, we're going to talk about two things about Jesus' life. And one is Jesus' missing years, and we'll explain what that means if you're not familiar with it. And the second one we're going to talk about is whether he spoke Greek. Do we have any reason to believe that he spoke Greek? And as we get into the topic, we're going to talk about why we need to raise that question in the first place. So, Wesley, this is, this is your wheelhouse, so to speak. So, let's talk about this. I remember... I think it was about 10 years ago, and I was on this Korean website. Uh, as you know, Korea has a very strong, traditionally strong Buddhist influence and those kinds of things. And this one guy on this one web forum was making this claim that Jesus, during his teen years, went to India and received Buddhist and Hindu teachings and brought that back. So, I I, th I thought that was a ridiculous claim myself, but there is something to be said about, okay, what's going on there? If you read the Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke tell us his birth narratives, right? The nativity story. And Luke is the only one who mentions anything about Jesus as a boy. So, you know, there's that story about how Mary and Joseph 
lost the Messiah of all people. <laughs> you know, can you imagine losing the Messiah uh, in Jerusalem? But they find him at the temple. I believe he was 12 years old at that time, but then there's nothing recorded about him until he kicks off his ministry, Jesus, that is, kicks off his ministry at the age of, it is assumed to be, I believe, 30, because that's roughly when people started public ministries like that. And so, the idea is, what happened in between that time? About 18 years. So, did I miss anything? Does that sound like a good sort of setup, if you will? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you highlighted it um, well. This isn't necessarily a topic that everyone would have run into, but it does pop up. Even my mother-in-law was doing a business course online that she was uh, working with her organization, and one of the guys, when she mentioned, I think just casually in you know conversation on the Zoom call, that she was a Christian, he said, "Oh, I'm a I'm a Buddhist. Uh, have you ever looked into when Jesus went to India?" And she was like, wait, what? When Jesus went to <laughs> India? And so she, you know, sh- shot me a text and she said, you know, Wes, I have no idea what this guy's talking about, but I have an inkling that you might. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did. And, and you know, it comes up every once in a while. It pops up on, you know, documentaries. It seems around every Christmas and around every Easter, you, you hear a number of kind of like oddities, if we want to use that word, around the life of Jesus, you know, whether that has something to do with a a lost or secret gospel that pops up, or, you know, um, something about, you know, oh, well, Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene, or did you know that when Jesus was a child, he went to India to to study, but there's always something, right? Whether it's on the newsstands at the grocery store, or it's popping up on, Mm. you know, some news network who's trying to create some sensational headline. Um, But yeah, and the reason for this topic in particular is because, like you said, Steve, we really don't know anything about Jesus' childhood. Mm -hmm. The Gospels are just silent. You know, when when you're talking about the four Gospels that are found in the New Testament, people who are, you know, who have maybe more of the New Age leaning or atheist agnostics, you know, they they often bring up, oh, you know, did you know that there were other Gospels? There were hundreds of other Gospels, and you just happen to have four of them in the New Testament. So, tell us a little bit more about that, because it is true that there were other Gospels that were written after the four canonical Gospels were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, and in one sense, the claim is right in the fact that there were, I don't know about hundreds, um, maybe a couple dozen uh, other Gospels that were in. And if the listener is interested, um, I do have an infographic on my website on wesleyhuff.com. And there's an infographics tab, and I have an infographic that highlights the history of Gospels, and I call it from canonical to apocryphal. And in there, I have a time frame that highlights, you know, when the biblical Gospels are roughly dated. And even though there's debate about how early or how late they are, they all fall into the first century. So, they all fall into the time frame of the immediate followers of Jesus and Jesus himself. And all of the other ones, no matter whether we're talking about the earliest of these non-biblical Gospels or not, they're all at a time frame when the names associated with them, those people were dead. So, Steve, nowadays with plagiarism is I take 
your work and I put my name on it, right? right? Because I want to sound smart. And I think, <laughs> ah, Steve, Steve's a bright guy. I'm going to look up some of the stuff he's written and I'm going to slap my name on the top. Well, in the ancient world, let's be honest, nobody's going to read the Gospel of Wes. They're just not. It's just not going to happen. But the Christians know who Peter is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I take my work and I put Peter's name on it, now all of a sudden it has a level of credibility in the Christian community. And this actually, uh, this has to do with the formation of the biblical canon. One of the reasons why Christians started saying and having discussions within early Christianity about, okay, we need to make sure we know what the right books associated with what we're associating with what eventually became known as the New Mm -hmm. Testament canon. The, The reason why they're like, we need to get that right It's because there were documents that were being written and having names slapped on them. Mm -hmm. And this is true particularly with Peter and with John. There were a lot of writings with those two names. You have the Acts of Peter, you have the Gospel of Peter, you have the Epistles of Peter, you have, and so on and so forth. And it's one of the reasons why First and Second Peter the early church kind of wrestled with, and and first and second and third John, because all of a sudden, you know, we have multiple letters with this name. Well, we also have some of these other crazy documents with mm. their names on it too. So let's let's make sure we get it right. Yeah, and we'll, on that note, kind of bringing it back to Jesus' missing years, I find that one of the names that you find among these uh, forgeries, I guess you could call them, uh, are gospels. Uh, supposedly written by Thomas, right? Mm. And and then there's the, especially the one that's relevant to us today, I think is the infancy gospel of Thomas. Because you you mentioned earlier about Jesus' childhood, what he did. And if you read the infancy gospel of Thomas, you read about Jesus, Jesus basically bumping into somebody and then zapping them to death or creating clay sparrows and then bringing them to life, like basically doing some of these like magic tricks and Jesus portrayed as the sort of something of an unruly child in, in in some cases, like a normal child, right? And so I think there, even back then, there was this sort of um, desire to fill in the gaps, if you will, because well, there is a gap of roughly eighteen years between Jesus. You know, but we're missing his teen years as well as his twenties. So, can you tell us a little bit about? The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, for our listeners, what what is that all about? Yeah, so there there's actually a range of literature that's associated with Jesus' childhood called infancy narratives. And it's for the same reason that, you know, we have the popularity of the story of Jesus going to India, because people are like, well, I'm curious. I'm curious what Jesus was like as a child, as a teenager. What, what happened in there? And so, to fill in some of the gaps in the later centuries after the biblical documents were written, we have some of these uh, writings. So, the as you mentioned, the Arab Infancy Gospel of Thomas is a late 5th or early 6th century writing, and it tells some of these stories. Um, the most famous one that you, uh, you just uh, narrated for us very briefly, Steve, is that story of Jesus making clay birds mm. on the bank of a river. And the Jewish authorities are getting mad at him because he's doing it on the Sabbath. And so, what Jesus does is he breathes on the birds, and the birds turn into real birds, and the evidence flies away. And this story actually makes its way into the Quran. Uh, In chapter 19 of the Quran, 
we have the story of Jesus making clay birds and turning them into real birds. Um, and this is one of the evidence that uh, scholars point in saying that the the author of the Quran couldn't tell the difference between what was, you know, authentic Christian material and then later fables that were floating around in some of these heretical Christian communities. Uh, that's a bit of an aside, but we have these these stories that that come from these other works of literature. And in one sense, um, we can understand why people were prying into that. But in another sense, the Gospels, the biblical Gospels, fit right into how the ancient world would have understood why it's important to write biographies, to write the life and times of certain individuals. You know, whether we're talking about Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar— there's a reason we don't know much about big blocks of their lives, and it's because in the ancient world, the important part was what you focused on. And so the important part of Jesus's life was his ministry, mm-hmm. his earthly ministry, particularly after his um, his commissioning at the, the baptism, and then, you know, his life, death, and resurrection. And so uh, we do have you know, important parts that come before that. Obviously, the the birth of Jesus was significant, and so they, they added that in. But there's a big block of Jesus' life that, you know, didn't contribute to the main storyline. Right. In other words, we shouldn't find it surprising that there are these missing years of Jesus, because, in other words, you're, you're saying— the ancient writers wanted to get to the really important part or whatever they thought was the really important part, which was Jesus' public ministry. They, they wanted to get there as soon as they, they can, rather than, you know, narrating his entire childhood, which is what we would expect to see in, say, a biography that we, that we read today, written by modern authors. Uh, is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I think um, there were some scholars in the 1800s who thought the the biblical gospels couldn't be biographies because a biography would obviously include someone's childhood. And what mm-hmm. they were basically doing was what's referred to as an anachronism. You apply a standard or an idea or a concept that we hold today, and then you read that back in, right? Obviously, biographies talk about someone's entire life. And so, if we were going to write a biography, we'd include Jesus's early years. Well, in the ancient world, that wouldn't have necessarily been the case to a large Mm -hmm. degree, unless there was something really significant, say, Jesus going to the temple and teaching the rabbis. (laughs) That's significant, right? So, they include that one because it stands out. Um, But just because we would do it today doesn't mean that they would do it back then. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't count just because we think it should. Now then, let's bring it back again to Jesus' missing years. Now, the claim is that, of course, Jesus, who was being raised in this small town in rural, you know, Galilee, in Nazareth, that he somehow, for whatever reason, traveled all the way to India. Now, at face value, I find that very unlikely— because it's a for one, it's a really long distance to travel, and I would assume that it would cost a lot of money to travel like that as well. So, I mean, just just give us a, I guess, a f- bit of a flavor on what it's like to travel back in those days. I mean, am I sort of in the ballpark here in terms of the cost of travel and just even the fact that this is such a long distance? I don't know, Jesus, coming from a 
you know, some backwater town in the Roman Empire could have made that kind of journey. Yeah, so actually, I, I think I'll get to that. Um, let's back up, though, because the the narrative usually goes that Jesus traveled through India and ended up in Nepal and oh, okay. studied Buddhism in Nepal. Uh, that sort of, there was a guy in the, uh, the 1800s, his name was Nicholas Notrovich, and that's the origin of where this comes from. This guy, Nicholas mm. Notrovich, uh, said that he had found this story, this narrative of Jesus going to, you know, traveling through what is now Afghanistan and Pakistan and India and ending up in Nepal. Um, he wrote this book called, uh, I think it was called Jesus in India, um, in 1894, uh, and outlined this idea that uh, Jesus studied as a Buddhist and under Hindu gurus and then took that back. Um, now, in terms of the distance thing, uh, as you said there, Steve, Nepal is 5,000 kilometers away from Galilee. <laughs> mm. So l- let's exclude the fact that there were no cars, mm-hmm. uh, there were no planes. Um, this would mean that if Jesus did pull off this journey, he would have been the greatest world traveler the first century had ever seen. You know, apart from Alexander the Great, no one had ever traveled that far. So mm-hmm. it's not impossible that Jesus did this, but the probability of Jesus doing this would have made Jesus one of the most important world travelers. I mean, put him alongside Alexander the Great and um, uh, Marco Polo and, uh, you know, whoever else you want to add to that list. Mm-hmm. It's so improbable that it it's actually a, a little bit uh, r- ridiculous and mm-hmm. the the reality of that journey um would have taken a very long time would have been very dangerous and it it's just it's pretty unlikely that anything like that ever outside of the fact that you know if we actually analyze Jesus's teachings mm-hmm. what do we get what well, we get Judaism, right? Yeah, we get right. what are Jesus's influences? It's it's not Tibetan Buddhism. It's not uh, Indian Hinduism. It's thoroughly steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, in Hebraic modes of reasoning and um, rabbinical thought. That's yeah. where we get the influences of Jesus, which I find really interesting because I grew up in South Korea. And anybody who knows my story, uh, I had very close contact with Buddhism. And my grandparents and my dad used to be Buddhist. Either before I was born or when I was really young, my grandmother came to know the Lord. um, And then the whole family got baptized later. Um, And uh, and so I am somewhat familiar with Buddhist teachings. And I actually went to a Buddhist, private Buddhist middle school. Just as you have. So that was fun here as a Catholic boy going to a Buddhist school. That was interesting. And to this day, some of my extended family members, they're they're still Buddhist. And Mm. so when I went to school, uh, to Biola University to do my master's, um, I took some interest in Buddhism. Even as I was studying world religions, I zeroed in on that a little bit. Um, And man, like if you want to study a worldview that is so different from Judaism and Christianity, forget Islam, right? Um, Buddhism is the one. 
it, it is just so different. Everything, just about everything that we affirm as Christians, they'll deny, right? So mm. Buddhism teaches you have no soul, that this is all an illusion, right? That God either doesn't exist or if he exists, his soul transcended that he's got nothing to do with us, right? And the view of God is this not this sort of personal God or a community of persons, as we would say in, in Christianity, right? Or nothing like that. It's just this, it, it starts with Dharma, right? That's the ultimate reality. And just, uh, there are so many differences compared to that. Islam actually almost looks like an identical twin. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but you know what I mean, right? It, it, it's considered one of the Abrahamic religions, although whether they actually have any purchase on that kind of Abrahamic lineage and theology, that's another question. But And so I, I found it just off the get-go really puzzling when people started claiming, right, yeah, Jesus brought Buddhist teachings to, to you know, Galilee and Judea. I'm just like, I don't, I really just don't see Buddhist teachings in what Jesus is teaching. Um, maybe with the exception of something like the golden rule, right? But then that's found in just about you know, every religion. And so that's, I mean, just because you have that parallel doesn't really tell us that that's where he got it. You know what the, the average pizza order is for a Buddhist monk? Okay. <laughs> this is a little random. What, what is it? Oh, uh, they, they asked uh, to be made one with everything. <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to steal that one. Wah, wah, wah. Okay. So, <laughs> and yeah. all our listeners just turned their podcast app off. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All so, right. um, going going back to uh, something that's actually relevant to what we we're talking about. Yeah. Oh, another thing about this particular topic, like I said, the origin of it, you really don't find anything in history. Um, there's nothing in history that that confirms any of this, apart from this book by this guy Nicholas Notrovich, who was this. He wasn't even actually an academic. Um, he was a, 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 I think he was just a lay Russian researcher in the 1800s. And he had this whole theory, if you read his stuff, that um, Jesus went to Nepal eventually and studied. And he said he'd found this document at this ancient uh, Nepalese monastery. Well, actually, uh, the, the head of that monastery eventually came out when asked and made a public statement that said no Russian researcher had ever been to to that particular mm. monastery. And not only that, but when Notrovich took this to the academy, one of the things that they pointed out almost immediately was that Buddhism didn't actually reach Nepal till the 7th century. Mm. So even if you give all the benefit of the doubt to this theory, Buddhism didn't get to the place where Jesus is said to have made his final destination and study until mm. 700 years after Jesus. So that kind of, you know, throws a wrench into the machine of the the entire theory. Mm. But even if you move all that aside, there's just nothing. There's nothing in the historical record that convinces anyone that um, Jesus had made this type of journey, that he was influenced by these, these types of theories. Like you said, even just a cursory glance at the essentials of Buddhism and those ultimate questions that both Christianity and Buddhism try to answer, or Hinduism as well. You know, they're, they're asking the same questions as I think, you know, all good worldview perspectives do, but they're 
coming to drastically different answers. And so we should, at minimum, if this was true, see some type of influence of, you know, the the noble truths of Buddhism um, or the Eightfold Path, something, you know, mm-hmm. anything. And yeah. we, we don't we don't get anything like that in, yeah. in the New Testament. Often I find that this sort of sort of a view is popular among people who kind of want to affirm all of the world's religions, right? And they, mm-hmm. they want to kind of I don't I don't necessarily blame them for this. I think their intent is at, at least good, is that they want to kind of bring all the religions together and they try to make connections as much as they can. And um I, I can appreciate that sentiment. I guess I'm just thinking that um when you look at all of the world's religions, insofar as religion is a, a human enterprise, a human endeavor regarding the ultimate reality, ultimate truth, and the divine, those kinds of things, you should expect to see some similarities. And so, for example, I, it was very interesting. Uh, I know you go to a lot of these interfaith dialogues. Uh, I wasn't a part of an interfaith dialogue, but I was invited to this apologetics conference out in Winnipeg in February of all times. They couldn't invite me out in July or something. It had to be February, right? But I was I was really honored. It was a great weekend. I, I went there and one of the topics that I spoke on was do all religions lead to God? What mm. the organizers organizers hadn't told me was the fact that before my talk, they would actually have a multi-faith sort of interfaith dialogue where they invited a Sikh, a Buddhist, a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, um, a secular humanist, and a Muslima. Right. So they all mm. sat down. It was very interesting. Every single one of them emphasized ethical living, good living. So the Sikh mm. gentleman said, you know, first be a good human being, then you will be a good Sikh, then you will be a good Christian, you will be a good Jew, so on and so forth. Right, and here's a secular humanist who's like, okay, we we can use science and reason to you know create this this wonderful society. Um, of course, the Muslima talks about obedience to God and how you know that that makes us better better people and those kinds of things. And, and I thought that was very fascinating. So it set me up perfectly because I went up during my talk and I said. The message of the cross is that you can't do it on your own. <laughs> you can't be good people on your own. It's about grace. It's not about our own efforts um, that saves us, but we need to be saved from the outside. We can't save ourselves. So it's actually a, a very different message in that way. Um, and so what I find is people often look at that emphasis on ethical living, right? How religion basically tells us to be good people. And every religion does that in a sense. Uh, I would take exception to Christianity, although it's there. Right? Of course, you want to be good people, but that's not what saves you kind of thing. But it's there, right? So people look at that and go, see, all the religions are basically the same. But then I find that when you ask, okay, why should I be a good person? The answers are wildly different, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, Steve. I think that is a good chunk of the motivation for people. I think this sort of um, all religions lead to God. Can't we just all get along? You know, the coexist philosophy. I think that does come into play. And 
they're looking for ways to kind of synthesize the religious perspectives. And if Jesus had Buddhist and or Hindu teaching, then that kind of, it kind of weaves a thread um, mm-hmm. through that kind of narrative. Uh, yeah. yeah. Along the same lines of what you were talking about, there's this great, I think it's recorded online. I think you can find it. Um, and it was a, a dialogue with one of our, um, one of our adjunct with uh, Paul Dedicks Canada now, Andy Bannister. And it took place here in Toronto in 2015 between Andy, who's obviously a Christian, uh, Shabir Ali, who's a Muslim, and then uh, Justin Trottier, who was, uh, he's an atheist. And mm-hmm. I think at the time he was the head of the Humanist Society um, of Canada, something like that. And the topic okay. was, what what does a good society look like? Uh, along the s- same lines of what you were, were talking about there. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating. I was in the audience at, to hear them talk because, like you said, the the atheist he kind of said, you know, if we can get people to agree on what is good and do good things, then that makes a, a good and just society. And Shabir, as a Muslim, said, you know, if we obey the commands of God and we follow according to the law of Sharia, then that's what makes a good society. And Andy basically stood up and said, hey, guys, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you make more laws, guess what's going to happen? People are going to find the loopholes. People are either going to obey because they don't want to get caught or they're going to find ways to get around the laws and obey the laws in theory, but not actually in practice. And the only way to solve that situation is to change change people's hearts. And guess what Christianity says? Christianity says, that's how we can do it. You know, um, God is going to take your heart of stone and he's going to make it a heart of flesh. And you're not just going to want to obey the laws for the sake of it. You're going to want to obey the laws because you're changed by the Holy Spirit. I, I thought it was a, a really fascinating sort of interplay between, yeah, what does religiosity according to the world look like? And what does, you know, changed gospel religiosity according to scripture look like? Preach it, brother. Preach it. Love it. <laughs> now, with the remaining time that we have here, I want to jump into a different topic, but it all still has to do with Jesus' life and what his upbringing mm-hmm. might have been like. Um, and so, I, I want to kind of set this up by an argument that I heard. The argument is, if you go to John chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says that you, know, you have to be born again. Now, the mm. word again there um, is onothen in Greek. Now, that word apparently has a couple of meanings. Now, Wesley can confirm this or tell me, I I, I don't know what I'm talking about, Um, but uh, maybe you can tell me once I'm done explaining my spiel here. So, that word anothen can mean two things. One is again, and it has the other meaning is from above. So, apparently what Nicodemus hears is, uh, so Jesus says, you have to be born anothen. So, it, it the trans in your Bible often it'll have a footnote saying it can mean two things, and uh, as we understand it, he said you need to be born from above. What Nicodemus hears is you have to be born again. So Nicodemus says, "How can I go into my mother's womb and be born again?" So he, he misses the point, and then the conversation continues from there. So what somebody like Bart Ehrman might say, and 
this agnostic guy who was kind of following his argument is that Jesus spoke Aramaic. And so he couldn't have used that wordplay using a Greek word. And so this was clearly something that was made up by whoever wrote this gospel because Jesus probably didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. He comes from this backwater town in Galilee. So likely he didn't know Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And especially because he is talking to a Pharisee, like a religious figure, right? Uh, he, they probably spoke in Aramaic or at least Hebrew. So this is not authentic. What, the, the account that you hear, the, his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is not authentic. So I've set this up. I'll pass it on to you, Wes. You, you run with it. Yeah, I love it. I love when I get to be nerdy and talk about Greek, right? And, and I'll back <laughs> up. I'll, I'm, I'm going to get, your, get to your point because that's a very good point and a good place to um, center on. If I back up and kind of tie it into what we were talking about before, what we can say about Jesus's childhood is that he was, and the, the Greek word, to tie in more Greek words because that's always fun, <laughs> Jesus is described as being uh, the son of Joseph, who was a—now, we translate this as carpenter sometimes, but the, the word is tectone. It literally, literally means uh, like a, a, a general worker who works with their hands. Now, that would have been, in context, probably carpentry. It could have really realistically been a number of the trades. And, mm-hmm. and also, another interesting point that's an aside is that— what eventually happened was that tectones would work under a head tectone in sort of a workplace, and that head tectone was called an arche tectone, which is mm-hmm. where we get the word architect from today. Oh, okay. The head of a class of tectones was an arche tectone, right? Think of the word arc, like an archbishop yeah. is a head bishop, or right? That's archangel where archangel or... You got it. Um, yeah. But Jesus is described as this, and... As someone who lived in the north end of of Galilee, as you said before, in Nazareth, who would have been dealing with this kind of trades work, I think it's reasonable to assume that Jesus and his father would have done a, a number of jobs for a number of individuals who spoke a number of different languages. Um Judea, ancient Israel, would have been kind of a meeting place for a number of different different ethnicities, uh, different individuals from geographical locations. And the reality of this time period was that the lingua franca, the language that everybody was speaking, was Greek. Uh, Now, they spoke Latin specifically in Rome, and that kind of took over more and more of the ancient world within the subsequent centuries. But Greek was the language of the day. Since Alexander the Great invaded the known world and set Greek as the language that everybody spoke, which kind of it's referred to as the Hellenistic era, right? Um, Helena is the Greek word meaning Greek. <laughs> um, and so we refer to this time period as Hellenism. And, and we refer to actually first century Judaism as Hellenistic Judaism because it was so influenced by the Greek society and the Greek culture. You know, a, the disciples, a bunch of them even have Greek names. Uh, Greek was just saturated within the society. And this is one of the reasons why uh, we've referred to in in past um, episodes of the podcast. Andy and I talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls a little while back. Uh, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, the uh, some of them at least, um, the Essene community, they didn't like this sort of 
marrying with the Greek culture. And so they took off mm-hmm. and started their own community. The Zealots, who are mentioned in the New Testament too, um, they also didn't, they, they weren't a huge fan of this sort of marrying with Greek culture. Mm-hmm. And so I think based on a number of factors, uh, we can say that Jesus growing up would have most certainly spoken some Greek. He would have spoken primarily Aramaic, and he probably, as a good Jewish boy, would have been reading Hebrew. But I think it's um, there are a number of places in the New Testament that kind of point to the fact that Jesus was probably speaking Greek in particular instances, one of which, like you highlighted, was the kind of linguistic pun that Jesus plays when he's talking with Nicodemus. I think this was probably spoken in Greek and that Jesus is making a point that actually has two meanings. When he says, unless one is, and the phrase is genethe anothen, right? Unless they are born again, or like you said, born from above. That there's an, a sort of an idiom, a Greek idiom there, which could mean either. And I think Jesus means both. But Nicodemus hears one. And so yeah. that's why he answers the way he does, right? Okay, yeah. Um, you know, unless one is born anothen, again, or above, one cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus replies, well, how can a person be born being old? And so he's hearing one, and he's missing the play that Jesus is actually saying. Mm. Um, and so then Jesus points out to him that, you know, there's this there's this uh, supernatural work that's going on, that unless someone is born from water and also the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so he points Nicodemus in the right direction, but I think he's probably speaking Greek there and making yeah. that point. You know, uh, on that note, one of the objections that this agnostic guy raised is, listen, Jesus is a Jew talking to another Jew. Uh, they're speaking, you know, probably speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew. It can't be that they, why would they speak a different language when mm-hmm. they both have a common language. And I found that really interesting because in my personal experience, right, um, again, if, if our listeners don't know my story, I was born and raised in South Korea and I came to Canada when I was 14. So English is actually my second language. Um, and and I worked as a Korean freelance translator for a long time, Korean and English, um, translating things both ways, Korean to English, English to Korean so I'm comfortable with both languages. And I remember very clearly, um, you know, I would sometimes, I, I used to attend a Korean Catholic church and I mm. had some friends there and we would just talk, right? Now, here's the funny thing. We often spoke in English, hmm. even though everyone knew Korean. Um, some things were just better expressed in English and other things were just better expressed in Korean. And often... Because it is the lingua franca here, if you will, um, or at least this this is the native language here, if you will. Um, uh, not that lingua franca is the native language, but it is it is the most commonly spoken language here. And so we spoke in English often, and we would throw in Korean words here and there um, if it fits sort of the Korean whatever, like sociolinguistic this or that or the other. And so we would use 
terms of address like Nuna, which means an older sister, right? So when we refer to mm. Korea, just isn't a first name based society unless you're friends or or whatever. So when you refer to somebody older, when you address somebody older, you always use a title. And we still kind of maintained that even as we were speaking English, right? So we would throw in Korean words like that. Um, yeah. And in linguistics, you this is a very well-known phenomenon in linguistics. Uh, and in linguistics, it's called code switching, right? Where you kind of go back and forth, you mix things, mix things up, and you switch back and forth between different languages. And you see that sort of thing in Montreal, too, where people speak English and French interchangeably quite often. And so I found that really interesting because just in my experience alone, I could tell you, yeah, this this can happen because I know this from my own experience. But there is some good reason to think, and just from my own experience alone, to think that, yes, they they could very well have spoken Greek to one another. Yeah, and that's a good practical example from like now and, and that we can see. Uh, I think that held that argument for the biblical New Testament held more water a few decades ago. I think at this point, what we see is that when we actually investigate the New Testament, we see so much of a synthesis of Aramaic and Greek culture that it's, it's, I think scholarship sees it far more likely that a conversation like this would have taken place. Let me give you a couple of examples of this with this synthesis of, of Greek and Aramaic. So, um, by the time we get to the first century AD, Greek names were just as popular as Aramaic names. Mm. And of Jesus's 12 disciples, two had Greek names, Andrew and Philip, but Andrew's parents called their eldest son Simon, which works equally well in Hebrew or Greek. But when they had another son, they gave him a rather rare name, which works exclusively in Greek. It would have actually been hard to say if you simply just spoke Aramaic. Mm -hmm. um, and this suggests that they either spoke Greek or aspired to speak Greek. Mm -hmm. And although it's often claimed that the other 10 disciples held Hebrew Aramaic names, that's not entirely true. So Hebrew names can either end in any letter but Greek words and names only end with a vowel or the sound N, S, or R. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the list of given names in like a place like Matthew 10, which gives us an, the names of the disciples, apart from the two, Simons, all the rest of the names end with a Greek S. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the names Thomas, uh, Bartimaeus, and James are Greek, but it does mean that they presented as nativized with Greek terminations. Yeah. And we actually have names that are Greek adapted. You might recognize the, the name Bartimaeus. Mm -hmm. Well, Bartimaeus. that's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting name because Bar in, in Hebrew or Aramaic means son of. But Timaeus is the name of Plato's character in one of his writings. And so, whether there was an understanding of the origin and the importance of the name or not, whether they were actually reading Plato is an, another question, but they're combining a, a Greek suffix, or sorry, a, a Hebrew suffix with a, with a Greek name. And even, even the word Sanhedrin for the ruling council, that's Greek. It's not Hebrew or Aramaic. And so, there was a, a pretty big adaption 
and um, uh, synthesis of Greek culture, Greek language within, you know, the society of, of Jesus. And even just the fact, you know, if you ran into a Roman soldier and he wanted you to pick up your pack, I mean, Jesus says, you know, if someone tells you uh, to, to pick, you know, walk with them, Amai, you walk with them too. If a, if a Roman soldier said, hey, pick that up and come with me, if you didn't know what he was saying, you'd have been in big trouble. So you probably had some sort of uh, minimalistic working of, of the language um, that operated just so that you were, you know, not getting in trouble with the Roman authorities who were kind of the police of the day. Right. And just to pick up on what you said earlier, too, about how Jesus was a tectone and probably did all kinds of, you know, it's interesting. Uh, my wife and I, we're, we've been watching the TV show, The Chosen. Um, and for those listeners who are not familiar, it's kind of like a, a multi-show, multi-season show on, on Jesus from the perspective, portrayed from the perspective of the followers, the people that Jesus chose, if you will. And so, in it, you kind of come across you know, one of the disciples, Thaddeus, you know, and they're using sort of this artistic license to say that he he worked with stone, right? He was a construction worker, and he met Jesus at a construction site. And they're kind of using that artistic imagination, given what would be plausible around that time kind of thing. And I find that really mm. interesting. I, I thought it made a lot of sense because, well, Jesus probably didn't just work in Nazareth, I doubt that he probably he found enough work there. And um, mm-hmm. it, during my travels in Israel, I was I had the opportunity to go study there for three weeks. We actually went to Galilee, and the capital city of Galilee, Sepphoris, is actually not that far from Nazareth. Um, and, and the the idea was that Jesus probably worked did some projects in Sepphoris as well. And I what we noticed there was that Sepphoris was a very Hellenistic kind of a city. It was a very Greek city. We went to the remains of, I think it was, um, I think it, it was a synagogue, but I'm not sure. But it was some kind of a building that had some kind of a religious significance for the Jews. And yet, on the floor of this place, you see the Zodiac mosaic there, right? And with all kinds of the Greek written on it and those kinds of things. And so they were talking about syncretism, right? Where you melt different beliefs together. In this case, Jewish beliefs along with certain like Hellenistic beliefs, you know, those kinds of things. And so um, from there, just I, I. So then in this building on the floor, you see the mosaic of. of this zodiac with like Greek written on it and things like that. So, um, mm-hmm. so I thought I thought that was interesting. Uh, th- does that sound accurate to you? Like I often kind of defer back to you because you're you're the one who's trained in a lot of these things. Yeah, and, and I think you're exactly right that that makes sense. And we've actually uncovered inscriptions within synagogues uh, that are in Greek in, in Israel, n- not in Aramaic or Hebrew. And so I think this speaks to the fact that uh, the, the level of linguistic fluidity within um, both culturally and with what people were speaking and maybe even reading, uh, although that's a different discussion, uh, would have included both or at least a number of these different languages. I think one thing that um, I'll also highlight that comes from scripture is that we see a lot of evidence within 
scripture that Jesus probably was preaching, particularly in Greek. Uh, like you said, mm-hmm. there there were you know were these cities that were uh, Greek, kind of more um, in and around Israel. Uh, in fact, in in Matthew um, chapter four verse twenty five, it says that large crowds from Galilee. The Decapolis, Jerusalem, and Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Well, Decapolis is is a Greek city. So if people were coming from Decapolis, they probably would have been speaking in Greek. And actually, Jesus in his his uh, sermon on the Beatitudes, you know, the famous one, blessed are the poor, uh, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger. In Greek, that's actually an alliteration. The first word of each of those starts with, a, a Greek letter P. Um, so you have the the blessed are the poor, the patokoi. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, those who mourn, the penthuntes, the meek, praesis, or sorry, praise, and those who hunger, the pinonantes. So there's an alliteration within what Jesus is saying. So could have Matthew, uh, you know, made that so that it flowed better in Greek? I mean, I guess you could argue that, uh, but maybe he's actually recording what Jesus said word for word because it sounded good when he said it. You know, yeah. I, you and I, as Steve, as public speakers, do things like this, right? Yes. And I, I think it's not crazy to think what Matthew is recording is a version of, because Jesus probably, once again, is a traveling itinerant, he probably preached a number of these sermons a number of times, which is why we have them in the Gospels uh, a number of times, maybe in different iterations, because you don't say the same uh, talk exactly the same way every time. Um, But maybe what we have recorded in Matthew is a verbatim, you know, recording of this particular sermon, and Matthew remembers it so well because it had these things within it that mm. Jesus put in order to help us remember them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put alliteration in the same way that if, you know, I memorized all my Hebrew vocabulary by making them into songs, um, these are ways that we we remember things. Yeah. And, and you know, that reminds me, because uh, I'm going to be starting a Bible study series for the women's ministry at our church. And one of the things that we're going to be looking at is how Jesus interacted with Gentiles. And uh, I can think of stories like the Roman centurion whose servant is dying, or the one that we're going to look at specifically is the Syrophoenician woman. Um, and and I have to wonder, right? So Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon, and this Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite woman comes to him asking for him to cast out the demon from her daughter. And I have to wonder, would he have spoken Aramaic to her? She probably wouldn't have understood. They they have to have a common language if they're going to uh, actually have a conversation. Unless, of course, you're willing to throw off the whole story as inauthentic, because that just can't happen, because uh, clearly Jesus didn't speak Greek. Now, that's a different story, but but I, I think that's too premature. It, it seems like you're starting from the wrong place. Maybe you should be asking, do we have any reason to think that Jesus spoke Greek? And if we have some some reason, like when you look at a story like that, does this confirm uh, your your hypothesis? Or, or do you just start off with the assumption that he uh, 
couldn't have spoken Greek and then throw out stories like these. Uh, that's a, a really good point. I, I think it's the probability of Jesus when he talks to the Roman centurion, when he talks to the Syrophoenician woman, and actually when he's being uh, interrogated by Pilate, the, the probability that he was speaking Aramaic to those individuals is very, very low, especially with Pilate. He most certainly wouldn't have been speaking Aramaic with Pilate. He would, he would have been speaking Greek. Yeah. Um, that's that's a, a really good point. You know, um, as we are talking about all of this, you know, Jesus' missing years, uh, whether Jesus spoke Greek or, you know, exclusively Aramaic, those kinds of things, something that really hits home in all of this for me is the fact of how Jesus was such a historical figure uh, in a specific time, a specific place, coming to a particular people, interacting with particular peoples around him. And so in all of this, I, th I think about the fact that God broke into history, that God acted in history, you know? And so I, I love talking about different, you know, historical backgrounds and those kinds of things. And I certainly loved being in Israel, touring and studying for three weeks, just as, you know, it, it was, there was almost the sense of awe thinking, God worked here in a very special way, right? And if that's the case, then we're sucking air in the same world that, you know, God walked on, right? And, and this is not just some fairy tale, but this is rooted in history. And in mm -hmm. a sense, for me, this kind of, because living in this Western world where naturalism is so rampant, I can often slip into that mindset where I practically kind of look at the world as an entity on its own, right? There's nothing beyond this physical world. I can slip into that mindset. But then anytime we talk about things like Jesus' missing years, you know, his historical background about what he did, whether what language he spoke, all those kinds of things, and then actually being in Israel, it kind of re-enchants my world a little bit, that there's more to this world than, than just this physical stuff that we're made of. But there is somebody out there who loves me, who loves you so much so that he decided to get his hands dirty, so to speak, and, and break into human history, suffering with and for us, and ultimately through all of that, saving us from ourselves, saving us to him. I think it's time for me, at least, again, to sit on that and reflect on it. And I would invite our listeners to do the same. Thank you so much, listeners, for joining us this week and tuning in to this week's edition of AC Podcast. AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and you can engage us on all of our social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. We love hearing from you. A number of you have been reaching out to us, you know, asking, hey, can you address this topic on the podcast? How about, can you do that topic for the AC Literary Expedition? We love getting suggestions like that. We, we hear you. We take the time to read your emails and messages and those kinds of things, even if we can't uh, always reply right away. So feel free to engage us there and find us there. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, love God and love people.